Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm focused on whether the invocation of the Emergencies Act is justified in response to the illegal blockades we've seen across our country. To help me work through that question, I'm joined by two experts in national security law, first in conversation with Leah West, and then joined by Wesley Wark. Before we jump in, I should note that the Emergencies Act is not the War Measures Act. It does not mean martial law. And while it does allow for extraordinary and time-limited measures, there's a stronger emphasis on the protection of charter rights and the establishment of greater scrutiny, including parliamentary scrutiny, of government action. Second, it's useful to note that this is the first time it will be invoked at the federal level since its adoption in 1988, but also that provinces have invoked emergencies legislation on a number of occasions, including throughout the pandemic here in Ontario and including in response to the illegal blockades. Now, on to our guests. Dr. Leah West is a professor at Carleton University, where she publishes in the field of national security law. She's the co-author of the textbook National Security Law, and she's one of the hosts of the Intrepid podcast. She previously served as counsel with the Department of Justice in the National Security Litigation and Advisory Group, and before that, she served in the armed forces for 10 years as an armored officer. I first got to know Dr. West at the outset of the pandemic, where at that time I was also interested in whether the Emergencies Act could and should be invoked. Now, Wesley Wark is a CG senior fellow and recently retired from U of T's Monk School. From 2005 to 2009, he served on the Prime Minister's Advisory Council on National Security. He's the co-editor of Secret Intelligence, a book in the field of intelligence studies, and former editor of the journal Intelligence and National Security. He's previously provided advice to the Minister of Public Safety on national security legislation and policy, and I've had the opportunity to engage with him when he's attended as a witness at our parliamentary committee hearings. The debate in Parliament will go through the weekend, and these conversations are an opportunity to inform myself and hopefully to inform others too in the course of that debate. With that, here's my conversation with Professor West. Professor West, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So you have been critical around whether the activities we've seen to date meet the threshold required in the Emergencies Act to trigger the act. And the Canadian Civil Liberties Association had a tweet thread the other day that raised the same concerns and and made the claim that the threshold to trigger the act was not met. For those who haven't read the Emergencies Act, let's go a little bit slow and walk through the dual threshold, really. There's Section 3, and then there's also a reference via Section 16 and 17 to C or Section 2, but really 2C of the CSIS Act. So for those who aren't going to sit down and read the legislation, let's walk through those thresholds and and discuss a little bit about how the activities we've seen to date may or may not reach those thresholds. Sure. Um, Before you do that, I'll just say I'm not alone in my criticism, and it's not just the CCLA out here. Um, Adam Goldenberg, who literally wrote Emergency Law in Canada, Commentary and Legislation, also doesn't think that it's mid-met. And there's a lot of academics and constitutional law scholars who are are raising the same question. So I'm not an island um, or special. Um, (laughs) But um, with respect to what the thresholds are, there's kind of two different sets of thresholds because you have the are we in a national emergency threshold and then the do we meet the definition of a public order emergency so i'll start with the first one so the national emergency threshold has a couple of different elements in it so first of all we have to be talking about an urgent and critical situation of a temporary nature I think just looking at this, we can say, yes, this is temporary. It's not something that's hard and fast in our country. And urgent and critical 
I think that that's 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 a fair statement, right? Like that's easy. We need to we we we, we jump over that hurdle easily. Exactly. So then there's two different types of threats or or, or um, yeah, I would say threats that can give rise to a national emergency. So one is that the emergency seriously endangers the lives, health, or safety of Canadians, right? So that's the effect. And it also has to be of such proportions or nature as to exceed the, cap- the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it. So that's 3A. So you need those two different elements, right? Seriously endangers lives, health, and safety, and beyond the capacity of a province to deal with it. And pause, pause there, because yeah. the, let's take that one in, and we'll take them in turn. And I'm taking that first one. When we look at the blockades, the illegal blockades across the country from Emerson, Manitoba, to Coots, Alberta, to the Ambassador Bridge, and then the weeks-long occupation in Ottawa and interference of people's daily lives, unquestionably, I think it's fair to say, and we could, I think the evidence is sufficient at least to say the, the activities we've seen collectively endanger the lives of Canadians, the, the safety of Canadians in some cases, now, I think that that first part is fairly met, although people could maybe question, but I think that's the first part is fairly met. The more complicated question is whether it's of such proportion or nature as to exceed the capacity or authority of a province. Yeah, I think you're right. I think especially if we focus on or safety, it's lives, health, or safety, so that it's one of the other. I definitely think um, the people who are living in downtown Ottawa might definitely feel that their safety has been violated. And the government offers a number of justifications about why the blockades could ultimately harm health. Um, and, and so I think that that's fair. I mean, whether it's endangering life, um, potentially, I think, but I do think health or safety is met. That, yeah. So the next question is, is it of proportion or nature to exceed the, it says capacity or authority um, of the province. So authority means jurisdiction, right? Like does the province have the legal capacity or legal authorities to do what it needs to do, right? So we, we it's, it's like a constitutional law question here. Um, and capacity, I think of as not just a legal requirement. Do you have the legal, uh, legal authorities to do this? Um, do you have the laws on the books to do this? But also is, it's a means question. Like, do you have, do you have the manpower? The, do you have the, the money resources? The resources? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So I think those are two different types of questions. Um, and then um, you have to kind of tie it back to, okay, so what is necessary to actually prevent the risk to safety, health, and lives of individuals, and what tools and logistical capacity does the province have to handle that? Um, And so this is a question um, that you can either take province by province, or you could look at across the board and say, does it blend across the provinces such that no province could actually deal with it on their own? And so the way that the government has focused on this is that each individual province doesn't have the capacity to address the issue within its own province. And the only province they have a, they prevent like solid justification for is Ontario. That's right, because we've seen coots cleared. And in fact, we saw the Alberta government say they do have capacity and, and stay out of our lane. 
Manitoba, Emerson recently cleared, and it's the Ambassador Bridge cleared too. But we see Ottawa police, not only local police, there's been a clear abdication of their responsibility in enforcing basic laws, but the OPP have been unable to clear Wellington and clear the streets and and return the city to normalcy. And when Doug Ford has a press conference and says he welcomes federal involvement to restore law and order, do you think that's sufficient to, we've got a, you know, municipal police have failed, OPP haven't been able to do the job, you got the premier saying he welcomes the federal government. Is that sufficient to meet the exceeds the capacity or authority of a province? If I'm looking at this from a legal exam question <laughs> answering, I'm probably saying no, that's not what the law says. It's not saying if a province doesn't want to handle it themselves or get their hands dirty. It's a do you have the means, do you have the legal authority? But we are in an urgent and critical situation. So I'm willing to give a little on this um, as a legal academic. Um, And I do think that, you know, finding the answer to that, whether or not a province saying, I'm just choosing not to manage this crisis, whether that was contemplated by the drafters. But I I do think back to things I said about COVID. Um, I said, you know, if provinces um, early on in the pandemic, I said, look, if provinces aren't going to act, or if we get a situation like the United States, where you get some provinces acting and others not, it might be the reason to invoke the Emergencies Act. So I can't be um, (laughs) a hypocrite here and say that potentially yes. But I do just want to point out that some of the justification offered by the government on this specific point isn't particularly compelling. This idea about tow trucks. Um, That's not particularly compelling. Yes, they couldn't, the provincial government hasn't done anything around tow trucks and they suggest that they couldn't compel tow truck drivers, but there is other powers under the legislation, under the provincial emergency legislation that they could have used to incentivize or commandeer the trucks themselves to do that kind of thing. So I'm not, that's not a great justification in and of itself. The other justification offered by the federal government to say Ontario is beyond its capacity is they don't have the the police officers to manage this in in Ottawa, right? It's been proven that they've been overwhelmed. They haven't been able to address the protests because of how many there are. And the other is the financial issue. The provinces um, don't have the capacity to kind of go after the money that is funding this blockade. Now, again, that's questionable because we have seen the province of Ontario used the criminal code to go after the money that was funding um, the the convoy and get it um, get it seized or frozen. Um, but that's one of the justifications. Whether or not it's effective or not, again, and there's the knock on question as to whether the financial tools are necessary to clear the blockades. I mean, they they seem useful. Don't get me wrong. But we've also seen in the and I, I think I saw Premier Mo make the argument at least that the blockades have been cleared. I've seen others make the argument too that the blockades have been cleared without the financial tools at mm-hmm. these various border crossings. That's the more serious threat to from a national lens, yeah. at least. And when you look at the occupation, the unacceptable occupation, I think we'd all agree that the lawlessness needs to stop in Ottawa. But are the financial tools necessary to do the job? in comparison to ordinary policing that doesn't appear to have been employed yet in a serious yeah, way? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I don't think we've seen a lot of justification to say that they're necessary, but it is a fact that the provinces didn't have the capacity to employ the, these types of measures that are being used now. Um, they did have others in their tool belt. So again, 
we're really looking at the justification for this, right? You have to go back. 3A, seriously endangers the lives, health, or safety of Canadians. Check. And the strongest justification is there's not enough cops in, in Ottawa. Right. And, and in fairness, if I'm a judge looking at this and I'm going to be a little bit deferential in the course of a crisis when I've seen the breakdown of law and order in Ottawa and I've seen not only the province fail to intervene with the, with the powers that they should have intervened with, I also see the premier throw up his hand and say, I welcome federal involvement. And, and so I'm, a, I'm going to be a little bit sympathetic to. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of deference. Any, any, any judicial review of this legal threshold right, is be, going to be extremely deferential. Um, and so, I mean, that doesn't necessarily negate the obligation on the government to do its job, but we do have to expect that deference is high here. So we have a way in potentially with 3A. Now, before we turn to a more, I think, difficult challenge for the government, let's go through 3B because it, and it is an or they think they can't pull from a little bit from 3A and a little bit from 3B. It's got to be one or the other. 3A is a potential window into uh, declaring a national emergency, though, I think on the facts, although it's a, there's a bit of shoehorning to be done. But on B, it's seriously threatens the ability of the government of Canada to preserve the sovereignty, security and territorial integrity of Canada. Do you think that there's any credibility to that branch of the, of the national emergency test? So it depends. If you include Canada's economic security and economic interest in trading and relationship with trading partners as security, um, and if you think the border um, blockades threaten our territorial integrity, then maybe. Um, sovereignty sovereignty is a wishy-washy kind of word as an international, <laughs> when I put my international law hat on, it means something very specific, but I'm going to, again, allow for a broad interpretation of sovereignty here. And say potentially, yeah, if you include economic security, but you, we do have to assume that it is an economic security threat that we're talking about rather than a threat um, imperil, imperiled by, you know, foreign invasion <laughs> or something like that, um, which is usually what I think we we think of when you just naturally read that. You think of something that something's threatening our sovereignty, security and territory integrity. We think what's happening on the borders of Ukraine right now. Well, to, the, to that point, because when I initially read it and I didn't read it in a conjunctive way, so I was thinking, well, security, right. So economic security, we can easily make the case on security. And there's been and the explanatory note that was tabled in Parliament makes the case. And the OIC certainly outlined these factors around the impact on trade, the impact on our reputation with our with our partners, including the United States. Those are those are all major and significant negative impacts that we absolutely should respond to with with force if necessary but these are conjunctive so it's sovereignty security and territorial integrity it's, these three have to be read together yeah that's and that's different than lives health or safety of canadians right um so again i think it depends on how willing you are to interpret it, these terms broadly you know, I haven't done a legislative history to know how narrow or broad that they should be. Um, and again, this is something that would be subject to a lot of deference. And the lawyer and me can't help myself. So let's continue with three. Yes. And we're three. almost done with we're almost done with yeah. section three. But so three B, there's there's a whole lot offered here in the government's explanation to support the fact that Canada's economic security is threatened here. And then when we when we conclude the, the analysis of section three, because there's 
3A, 3B, but then there is uh, a final addendum here that says, and the emergency cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. And that is also a fairly high bar, one would think, to 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 jump over. Yeah, and and particularly here, um, I heard ju- uh, the justice minister mention when he said that that it had to be any other municipal, provincial, or federal law. But that's not actually true. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's less than that. Um, any other law of Canada, um, law of Canada, has been interpreted to mean a federal law. So, is there other federal legislation? Because we've already set, we've already satisfied. If we get to this point, right, it's mm-hmm. either beyond the, it's either beyond the capacity of the province that in three A, or it's an issue of federal jurisdiction because we're talking about the security, sovereignty, and territory integrity of Canada. So, we're really just talking about are there not other federal laws the federal government can use to manage this emergency? And pause there because when I was messaging. Minister Manichino throughout this a little bit and going back and forth. I wanted the boot to come down. I, I want the blockades <laughs> cleared. I, I I want law and order restored. I'm I'm the most bleeding heart liberal probably in our caucus in some ways, but I, I think an attack on the rule of law like this is unacceptable. And and we can't see this kind of lawlessness where basic law and order is so disrespected and the police are unable to enforce our our basic laws. And and you run through so many examples, but whether it's harassing people for wearing masks, whether it's the mischief in the streets, whether it's, and, and the blockades are, it's unacceptable that a bridge would be blocked for so long, unacceptable, the honking and, and, and the blockades in Ottawa that people can't go through their daily lives. And, and I've, I have friends, of course, in Ottawa, and one works with a hospital, and there are patients who have struggled to get to their appointments. And, and there, there are real serious impacts upon people's lives that I think people outside of Ottawa don't fully appreciate when I get some emails saying, oh, it's a peaceful protest and bouncy castles. And that is a, a small and I think incomplete and unfortunately construed picture of, of the reality of it. These are illegal blockades and, and they need to be stopped. But I was imagining when I was imagining the boot coming down that we'd be relying upon the RCMP to take over the operation in Ottawa that we would be relying in some cases upon Section 275 of the National Defense Act. So the military, it's not to say military in the streets to arrest people, but the military would deploy their resources in support of of the police agencies that are on the front lines doing their jobs. And that section allows them to do so as a matter of coming to civilian aid. Uh, So I was a bit surprised, I would say, to see us jump to the national emergency legislation. Yes. And the justification offered... So far, um, in the entirety of the document that was offered at tabled for legislation, I found two passages that speak to this, just that the current federal and provincial financial systems are ill-equipped to mitigate the adverse effect of the economic impact without additional measures, and that the ability to move financial resources between financial services providers without regards to their geographic location, um, blah, 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 um, can't be done at the provincial level or under our current federal law. So the two justifications offered um, in the entirety of the document to suggest that can that this emergency cannot be dealt with effectively spoke only to either mitigating the financial crisis or um, dealing with the donations supporting the blocking. And as if that's not enough in terms of jumping over the section three <laughs> hurdle, we haven't even yeah. gotten to what I, what I think is actually the harder hurdle in some respects. When we get to Section 16 of the Act and the definition of a public order emergency, there's a reference to threats to the security of Canada, 
threats to the security of Canada is a defined term, which has the meaning assigned by Section 2 of the CSIS Act. So let's jump over to Section 2 of the CSIS Act. And there are four elements there. Walk us through and brief those four elements. And then you can go in a bit more detail, I think, about the one that the government is hanging its hat on. Yeah, so there are four. They provide kind of a, a longer definition, but we short form them. And CSIS does in its, all of its annual reports to <laughs> subversion which requires either covert unlawful attempts to overthrow the government. I don't think there's any covert going on here. And or an attempt at violent destruction overthrow of the government. Setting that aside, the government's not saying that. It's um, not that. It's not that. Yeah. <laughs> espionage or sabotage. Again, not really. Not that. Not that. Uh, foreign influenced activity. Um, a lot of people say, hey, Leah, there's foreign money coming in here to support that. And yes, there is foreign money but we're talking about private citizens supporting private citizens. And we typically don't put that in the, into the bubble of foreign influence. We usually think about state actors trying to influence within Canada. That would mean that anytime a Canadian donates to a human rights cause in a repressive regime, Canadians are engaged in foreign influence. So like, we don't usually think of it that way. I'd be worried uh, if we did, by the way, because yeah. what we saw <laughs> in Alberta with a bit of a witch hunt around environmental activism if you did interpret it in such a way that American money coming into Canada in conjunction with Canadian money towards Canadian civil society organizations that are fighting in the public interest and however they see, you know, combating in this case, uh, the certain oil sands projects, that obviously is contrary to the economic interests of Alberta as the, the Alberta government sees it. And it would be a pretty sticky situation if then we were looking at that as a threat to the security of Canada as defined by the CSIS Act. Yeah, and vice versa, right? Canadians supporting anti-abortion sure. um, anti or pro-life causes in the United States, right? So and I, I don't think we want to get into calling mm-hmm. Canadian and American citizens supporting causes in the vice, in other, each other's countries foreign engaged in foreign influence. Right. We're talking state <laughs> yeah. actors principally here, which leaves us with only one section. Leaves us with one. Um, we typically... Short form that one to terrorism, um, which is activities within or relating to Canada directed towards or in support of the threat or use of acts of serious violence against persons or property. Now, I will say um, this, the document tabled in Parliament does uh, use the T word uh, once or twice, um, but I haven't heard the T word used um, when talking about what's going on. Um, but it is the T word. Um, that's <laughs> it is terrorism. And I should say that there's two parts to that definition. So it also has to be that serious violence or threat of violence towards persons or property has to be for the purpose of achieving a political, religious, or ideological objective within Canada or elsewhere. And We've I think got the latter that part. part. Of that is, you know, we, <laughs> yeah, we can, we can bracket slam it off. Duck. The, yeah. the real issue here, and to be a little less legalistic, I suppose, is we're talking about activities directed toward threats or the use of serious violence. We're talking about the threat, threats of serious violence or the use of serious violence against persons or property. And it, like, that's fun, function yeah. what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about just being a threat to the security of Canada. But that's not the entire definition of a public order emergency, right? So we have to satisfy that we have a threat to the security of Canada but the public order emergency requires that the emergency arises from that threat. It can't be that that threat comes from the emergency. That's 
where I'm having trouble here. I think that there is ample support to suggest that as a result of these protests, it's created more opportunities for violent extremism. It's emboldened violent extremists. Um, It has created targets of opportunity for extremists. All of that is true. And I do think it'll have long-term impacts on ideologically motivated and politically motivated violent extremism in the country. But the question is, is is the terrorist threat creating this emergency that we talked about in 3A or B? Not whether or not the emergency is creating the risk of terrorism. And that's where, when I look at this, I don't see the justification in the document tabled yesterday. I was struggling with this too, because there unquestionably has been violence. I mean, I've seen some people compare the honking to violence. I I don't know that. Uh, that obviously has a, has a a hugely negative impact upon individuals. I don't know if it amounts to serious violence in accordance with the CSIS Act. I, I don't think it does. But when we look at the conspiracy to murder charge out in Coots and we see the cash of guns seized, there's clearly violence here. There's, at a minimum, the threat of violence, of serious violence. We see threats of violence. I, I, I saw horrific stories where people were wearing masks mm-hmm. and people were, you know, intimating sexual assault if if women continue to wear masks on the street. So there's a, a slew of evidence around threats of serious violence that we could hang our hat on. But your point is mm-hmm. the serious violence has to constitute the national emergency. And here, I think people fairly looking at this, it's the blockades that are constituting the emergency and the threats are ancillary to the blockades. Yeah. And I mean, if we go back to 3A, right, seriously threatens the lives, health, or safety of Canadians, is the threat to lives, public safety of Canadians, the direct result of terrorism, ideologically motivated and politically motivated violent extremism? I'm sh- I have no doubt that in certain instances, the two correlate. But again, when I I look at how the chips are stacked, the government's document tabled yesterday really does emphasize the economic security interests of Canada. Like that's where the bulk of the threat from the stemming from the emergency um, is in its justification. And then again, it's like, okay, so is terrorism the the reason for that economic insecurity, right? And certainly. If we were seeing terrorists threaten borders, right, with violence to the sense that, like, we are going to blow these bridges, abs 100%. But I don't, there's nothing in this that suggests that that's what the government is suggesting is going on. And even the one claim where the explanatory note says there is evidence of coordination between the convoys. There's no evidence provided. That's just a blanket statement. It does say and, that, yeah. And that level of coordination would presumably speak to a larger effort to where the blo- yes, commit, you know, establish blockades, but a larger effort maybe to use violence. Because I think one argument that the government puts back is to say, well, but they're using violence against police to continue the blockades. And so they're they're interconnected. And this the, if there were an association as between the blockades, and there were this more active strategy to use the serious threat of violence to continue the blockades, it does start to paint a, a different picture, I think. But I, I didn't see that evidence 
fully explained in any way whatsoever in, in the in the note. No, and that's that's really the the gap here. That's the gap that um, I'm hoping um, gets filled in during debate um, because there may certainly be evidence of that. Obviously, <laughs> the intelligence community is not going to share everything it knows or you know support that being laid out before Parliament, but it is this gap. Um, but we need to know enough in parliament to do our jobs. And, and my challenge, I'm in this unenviable position where I actually, I support vaccine mandates. I want the boot to come down and I want to clear these protests, peaceful protests. Yes. Protest all you like on Parliament Hill protest and, and, and make my life difficult and, and be loud and protest outside of my office, but, but don't, interfere with people's legal rights to to get where they need to get and to provide for themselves and to look after themselves. And the illegal blockade has to come to an end. But I worry that we haven't even got to the proposed measures yet. The yeah. whole debate in an emergency setting, and, and someone like me who does concern themselves with civil liberties, the whole debate should be around the necessity and proportionality of the proposed measures to respond to the emergency. And we've just spent all of our time talking about whether there's even an emergency to trigger the emergencies act in the first place. Yeah. And, and, you know, if I'm sure you're getting the same thing where people are going, of course, there's an emergency, nothing has worked, do something. And I'm sympathetic to that, but I'm also a legal nerd academic who specializes in national security. And my concern is you don't fudge whether or not there's an emergency Fudging where there's an emergency where it's politically expedient is something that we see not in Canada, one would hope, in other in other regimes that use emergency measures to crack down on dissent. And my fear is fudging this or shoehorning it or however you want to call it creates a terrible precedent for if it's politically expedient to use the Emergencies Measures Act, we'll use it. And that becomes a dangerous game. Well, especially if we start to interpret serious violence to mean economic harm. That is a very dangerous precedent, in my view, because you do see any number of protests. We saw one before the pandemic. It's a long time ago now, but people will remember that the railways were blockaded by, in some cases, you know, it was out of the the Wet'suwet'en dispute with the BC government, and we saw other Indigenous communities and other Canadians, frankly, stand up and block railways elsewhere across the country to make sure the the voice of the Wet'suwet'en were properly heard. And if it's economic harm that is equivalent to serious violence, one could imagine a different government could have invoked the Emergencies Act there. Yeah, and I got asked a lot around that time back in the before times, <laughs> and it was even a headline that got me a lot of hate mail from both sides, was that that activity walked up to the line of terrorism but didn't cross it because it ultimately didn't create property damage or seriously threaten individuals, right? Yes, it created economic harm, but there was no serious threat to life or limb and no actual physical destruction of property. That, seriously anyway. And so I said, you know, you're walking right up to that line. If those fires on the train tracks had uh, ultimately led to like serious damage of, of the train or its goods, et cetera, we would have been right there. But 
yeah, calling economic harm serious violence is uh, is not anything. I, I've been studying the Anti-Terrorism Act for my entire career. It's not anything we've ever contemplated when we were thinking about terrorism. My last question does relate to the specific proposed measures. When I looked at them, they seem to be fairly targeted as far as it goes. This isn't the, I get some emails about the War Measures Act. This is not the War Measures Act. We're not going to see hundreds of people who have their civil liberties and due process and suspended. And at the same time, when I look at the financial measures, I don't fully understand how we are wrapping some due process around that at the moment. And so have you turned your mind to, if we are going to have direct banks effectively to freeze assets of individuals who have their truck on Wellington, how do we establish a proper system of due process? In this game, the financial um, crimes game, especially under the proceeds of crime, money laundering and anti um, Countering Terrorism Financing Act, which is a long word for an act. Um, I'm not the expert, but I will say that a lot of discretion is left to the banks always because they're providing you a service that they don't have to provide you. Now, you do have a right to bank in Canada. Um, it's it's not a charter protected right, um, but it is always highly discretionary at the, you know, and left up to the banks, they have certain parameters where they have to either, they have to report suspicious transactions, Mm -hmm. right. Or um, review specific suspicious transactions or transactions of a certain type. But um, if they want to um, debank you or right, like they can really at any time. Um, And what we see around the discussion around listing terrorist entities, for example, then it becomes a crime if you provide people certain services. Um, so we're not, so we're kind of veering in along the edge of these two things um, right now. But ultimately, it's going to be up to the banks to determine who they're going to freeze the assets of. Um, but on that and point, so, and, the, and the civil liberties concern there. It's one thing if the truck is on Wellington and the RCMP are going to have that well-documented and they correspond with the insurance company to suspend the insurance or they correspond with the bank to say, freeze the assets to make sure that this truck is moved. It's a different thing for someone to have donated $500 before this became what it is. And I don't know that we have clearly at least articulated the, the boundaries here and Presumably, one would have to show that one intentionally gave money to what they knew to be uh, an illegal cause of of some sort. And so if there are people who are truly against vaccine mandates, and I think they're misinformed and misguided, but if if they truly have that belief and they're entitled to that belief in this country, if they contribute to what they think is a protest against that and they don't see the violence in Ottawa that those living in Ottawa have have directly experienced and seen. How do we how do we manage the yeah. mens rea? The good question to be asking is whether or not the expectation is that people who have previously donated, where is that line? Where are the banks going to draw the line? Right. Yeah. And that's the thing. What does it mean to support? Right. So the they this is the vagueness in the measures and it's going to be left mm-hmm. up to the banks. And there's always a lot of vagueness. There's even vagueness in like the the, the long act that I mentioned before. Um, but 
banks are pretty risk averse. So I, I do think that we need to expect that they will um, err on the side of caution here to be compliant with the orders. Um, so whether or not they're just going to look at those hacked documents from GoFundGo and say, okay, anybody on this list that is our, is our client, we're done with. Maybe you could say that because GoFundGo came into the picture two weeks into the, all of this, I think. Um, and um, But I also think it'll be people looking at, so who's on social media down at the protest that is our client, right? So banks do this kind of assessment. Um, I'm, I've learned all of this from Jessica Davis. So if you want to know more <laughs> about all of this, that's who you should look to. But things like, who has been in the region spending money in downtown core, uh, you know, who's not from Ottawa that's been there for the last three weeks, right? Like these are going to be the types of things, if it's not as obvious as who has a truck, whose name has been provided to us by the RCMP, um, those are the types of things that they will be looking for to assess whether or not someone can be deemed a supporter and have their assets frozen as a result. Um, so some of, the, and I will say that, some of what was initially announced in the press conference on Monday seemed a little bit more overreaching, um, like the idea that banks would then have to provide financial records back to the RCMP or CSIS, for example. I was glad to see that that didn't actually make it into the orders because I would have had privacy concerns over that. But um, ultimately, when it comes to banking and the due process issue, there is a little bit of a caveat here that banks don't have to provide you a service. Well, so from my perspective, it seems to me when I, the proposed regulations actually seemed, as I say, fairly well targeted. It was due process around the ability to freeze assets and, and freeze banking bank accounts that jumped out at me in terms of one concern that ought mm-hmm. to be raised and, and, and more details provided. But the bulk of the concern and the bulk of our conversation as a result is really around this threshold question. And yeah. It shouldn't be so. It shouldn't be so debatable, I think, as to whether the threshold is reached. That this should be that should be a clear cut issue, and then, as I say, we should really be debating the the scope and content of the regs. I appreciate all 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 your writing on this and and the work you put into this because it certainly helped inform my you know the way I'll engage in the debate and 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 my own decision making on, on this in the end. It's. Uh, not an easy conversation in some respects is it's a it's a strange position to be in as someone who wants to see the blockades cleared but is a little bit skeptical I would say about the the threshold question which is a very legalistic conversation so it is which is hard to do in an emotional time yes (laughs) but anyway I, I I really appreciate the time thanks now we turn to Professor Wark He wrote an article on February 11th in Policy Options that is well worth the read, where he articulated the need for federal intervention to protect critical infrastructure, but he also cautioned at that time that the Emergencies Act was not fit for purpose. He has subsequently been public in his support for the Act's invocation, so he provides a different perspective from the one we just heard. Professor Wark, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Great to be on on with you, Nate. So here's my challenge. I am supportive of clearing these illegal blockades. And I do think federal leadership in the absence of municipal and provincial leadership, and and there has been an absence of that leadership, I do think federal leadership is required, not only at the border, which is obvious, but even in Ottawa, where it is a matter of other jurisdiction, but if it's not going to happen in those other jurisdictions, the feds will lead. 
Then we get to the Emergencies Act, and I just spoke with Professor West, and she's expressed some skepticism about the thresholds in that act and whether the thresholds have been sufficiently triggered. But she wasn't the only one expressing that skepticism, because you actually on February 11th wrote, you said, the government is sitting on unusable legislation that is not fit for this purpose and has never been modernized to meet the changing needs of societal protection. And when you went through the thresholds, and we we can go through these, but in relation to the threats or use of Syrians violence against persons or property, you had in brackets, not yet. So since that time, you have been supportive of the invocation of the act. What changed your mind? I think, to be honest, Nate, what changed my mind was um, a growing concern, at least on my part, I think, you know, shared shared by perhaps by the government itself, that this is a protest movement that continues to metastasize, um, whose future looks uh, increasingly potentially violent, and that uh, there are, you know, the the design of the Emergencies Act, certainly in terms of the public order emergency part two provisions, you know, is explicitly uh, meant to provide some flexibility to the to the government to deal with an ongoing situation, of course, of temporary nature, where the threat is not precisely known, but where there is a concern that it could be more serious. My my main reservation uh, with the with the Emergencies Act. Uh, really involved when I looked at it and and when I wondered whether it might be brought into force a few days before it was, my main concern was that the the you know the principal damage that the protest movement was causing was in many respects to to critical infrastructure. I think it was a damage to the principles of governance, is good governance as well, but but critical infrastructure. Uh, as I looked at the Emergencies Act, does not appear in the language of the Act. Now, the government has found ways to to make the Emergencies Act uh, usable uh, to to protect critical infrastructure, and that's been a big part of their message in in the regulations and in the Order and Council. But it it's not there specifically in the Emergencies Act, and and I was looking at this and thinking, you know, this is an act that dates back to 1988. It relies on the CESA's Act, which dates back even further to 1985, as you know, in most of its provisions. This is legislation that sat on the shelf. It hasn't been um, used ever before. It hasn't been discussed by Canadians. You know, it is bound to be full of surprises. And because of the fact that it hasn't been used, uh, but the government felt at the end of the day that it needed it as a tool to deal with this emergency, um, you know, there was bound to be ways in which the government was going to have to shape it to the circumstances. And I call this shoehorning. You know, the government doesn't want to call it shoehorning, but I think that's reality. Probably not. But let's get to the shoehorning because I am sympathetic to everything you have said. And I am sympathetic to, I think there's been great damage to trust in institutions and trust in the rule of law when you see police officers that are failing to enforce the law and abdicating that responsibility and that we can't enforce the basic law. So there's a question, do we need new laws? But we absolutely need the enforcement of the existing laws and we haven't seen that. Except in fairness, we did see proper enforcement at the Ambassador Bridge, at Emerson, at Coots, but in Ottawa, it's been a continued struggle. Right. Now, when we get to the details of the thresholds, and I walked through this with Professor West, so I'm going to walk through this a little bit with you and see where you land on this. 
Sure. I took from your policy options paper, section three, you were hanging your hat on 3A because this very clearly endangers lives, health, or safety of Canadians. The honking alone you could point to, but certainly there are threats on the ground. Certainly the example in Coots, there are any number of threats you can point to of, of, of legitimate threats to Canadians. And, yep. and you, I think, articulated in relation to the second part of the test it exceeds the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it. Now, Leah would express some skepticism there, but when you've got Doug Ford saying he welcomes the federal intervention, you think that's enough to get us through that window? Yes, I do. So, so Nate, as you know, and you've, you've done your own deep dive into the Emergencies Act, um, it, the threshold for for proclaiming a public order emergency is essentially uh, twofold. One is that the government has to be able to demonstrate that in its view, this is a national emergency. That's one part of the threshold. And I think it's important to point out probably that a national emergency is itself a bit of a fungible phrase. and, And it doesn't necessarily need to mean that it's an emergency that is occurring right across the country. It doesn't have to have that geographic expanse um, although we've seen, you know, uh, isolated instances of, of a protest movement affecting different parts of the country, including uh, cross-border blockades, but it does have to be national in scale, and, and I think that's the important thing. It has to rise to that level of being essentially a national security problem, uh, where a province uh, does not have the capacity or the tools, and somewhere embedded in capacity is, of course, also willingness. A willingness, yeah. And I think that is fair. I think a judge would have a great deal of deference where you have a province that has failed to enforce the law in a timely way. I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah. When you have a situation in Alberta where they say, get out of here, we don't want federal enforcement, we can do the job ourselves. And then they did do the job in in, yeah. in coups. And we see the same thing in Manitoba. And thankfully, we saw the same enforcement at the Ambassador Bridge. One question I had around Section 3, and I apologize to listeners for the, <laughs> the, the, the legal discussion <laughs> and the extent of it in the course of uh, the, this episode. But when it comes to, and that cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada, does that give you any pause insofar as I could point to the Security Offenses Act and have the attorney, attorney general could intervene with the RCMP where a province is failing to deal with a security threat? Or I could point yeah. to Section 275 of the National Defense Act and say, well, the military could have come in civilian aid here and right. we don't want to see military arresting people, perhaps, or, you know, that's been a concern. But certainly they've got tools to take these trucks out of here. And is, does it give you pause at all that we didn't turn to existing tools and existing laws before we jump to the Emergencies Act? Yeah, Nate, on this, I, I would say a couple of things. One is that there are other tools. Um, and then the question becomes, are they as usable um, in the present circumstances as the Emergencies Act? And and I, you know, my view on this is, um, particularly in terms of the, of, of the Prime Minister's repeated um, statements that he does not want to see the military involved as a solution of any kind in this crisis. Uh, you know, I think some of those tools are, are at least for the moment off the table. Um, we may come to a point where there's no option but to call in the military and aid to the civil power. But as you know, that's not something that the government, federal government can do directly. It requires an attorney general of a province to to make that call. So, so that gets also politically complicated. But, um, you know, I, uh, what I would point to um, is that the government, the federal government waited uh, until after the uh, civic authorities in Ottawa declared their own emergency act. 
And that had absolutely no impact. And it waited until the provincial government of Ontario also declared its own Emergencies Act, uh, which was subsequent to the Ottawa Declaration. That had no impact. So, you know, I think there's been this chain of events from, you know, leapfrogging from municipal to provincial to federal Emergencies Act, um, which, which I think leads me to the conclusion that every level of government was reaching to emergencies acts. It's not surprising to me that the federal government ultimately decided to reach to theirs. And, and where I think it's legitimate for them to do so is in the failure of other levels of government to use their own uh, legal tools. Um, that in combination with the fact that, that, to be honest, I don't see a good legal set of legal tool options outside the emergencies act to deal with the specific circumstances uh, of this case. And, so, and to that point, I mean, there are many Ottawa residents, and I've heard from from Ottawa residents. I mentioned to Leah that I've heard about patients being unable to access their appointments, which is quite worrisome. But also, just this sense of abandonment that yeah. residents of Ottawa feel absolutely abandoned by all levels of government, and the invocation of the Emergencies Act and the pressure that will be brought to bear at the federal level to take hold of this and take responsibility will ensure that people aren't abandoned and, and that we are going to bring the, the tools to bear to ensure that the, the illegal blockade is cleared. Yeah. At the same time, Section 2 of the CSIS Act is quite a high bar. And so yes, Section 3, that we, we can jump through that window. I, th I, think, I think you're right that, that there's enough there. There will be deference and there's enough there. But then I really struggle with this one. So <laughs> you, you, you're going to have to do some shoehorning for me because okay, yeah. when I get to the definition of a public order emergency and there's explicit reference to the CSIS Act, and then I get to the CSIS Act and, and I mentioned we talked with Leah, there are four, it's not espionage, it's not foreign influence activities because it's not state sponsored. It's, it's not activities that are covert to overthrow the government. I don't think plausibly, although there's a bit of a cartoonish element to overthrowing the government at play, but yeah. it, it is C. And I think in your article, that that's what you were hanging your hat on, but you said not yet. Yeah. So what changes here when we look at the serious violence at play, when you write on February 11th, not yet. And then days later, the government's invoking this on this basis. Yeah. What is the government pointing to usefully to say there's serious there's threats of or serious violence at play right. against persons or property? Nate, that's that's a great question. I think it comes to the heart of it. The the most challenging threshold that the government uh, has to meet must demonstrate to Canadians that it's met is is precisely the CESA's uh, Act definition of threats to the security of Canada, which is embedded in the public order emergency. And I, I did wonder about this at the outset. There are four different um, potential provisions in the CESA's Act definition of threats to the security of, of Canada. I'm not sure we should be relying on that definition, but that's what the law says. So, you know, that's something to, to park and discuss. Well, that's a good point that you made in your article, right? That, that the law needs to be amended. I, I'm yeah. actually pretty sympathetic to, to that <laughs> argument, but that's not where we're at. No, I know. I'm being it's asked not, to vote on yeah, a, yeah. the invocation of the Emergency Act as the yeah. law as it is, and yeah. we're relying upon 2C, yeah. what it, the OIC tells me, and yeah. the explanatory note tells me. And I'm having a little bit of trouble squaring all of this. Sure. So of the four provisions, what I would say is we can we can clearly rule one one of them out of the four different definitions of threats to the security of Canada in the CESA's Act, Section 2. The one I think we can clearly rule out, and, and we're talking about shoehorning here, is espionage and sabotage. Right. You know, and that, you know, that that's a pretty classic definition of a threat security of Canada. There are three left to us. One is foreign influenced activities. 
Now, that is typically meant to refer to state-sponsored foreign influence activities. But if the government had wanted to shoehorn that provision into its use of, of uh, public order emergency, it could have. I, I think they didn't. I think they just didn't want to do that. And, and, uh, and wouldn't it give you pause in the sense of if we had Canadians contribute to overseas civil society yeah. organizations that were politically motivated in, in, in a positive yeah. way from our perspective, but yeah. perhaps not a positive way from from the host government? I mean, don't yeah. we don't we open up a can of worms in a really problematic way? Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the, you know, one of the reservations that hopefully people, you know, sitting around the cabinet table and elsewhere in the government had about uh, using right. that provision. So we can bracket that one, I think, fairly. I, yeah, and then 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 I'll skip to the last of them, which is activities directed toward undermining by covert unlawful acts, essentially the destruction uh, or over, overthrow by violence of the constitutionally established system of government in Canada. That's that's the fourth provision in the CSIS Act. And, and again, I think it would be a real stretch uh, to uh, to identify the protest movement as meeting that condition. So I all that's so. left so. to the government is, is the provision which we have grown to think about over years that's as a counterterrorism provision. Exactly. Um, but but you know now that we're in this nerdy conversation, if I can just read the language, because Canadians are going to have to get used to hearing this, I think. And so that provision, it's it's um, uh, the third provision in the Threats to the Security of Canada and the CSIS Act, reads activities within or relating to Canada, directed toward or in support of the threat or use of acts of serious violence against persons or property. And this is this is where critical infrastructure has been shoehorned into the public order emergency for the purpose of achieving a political, religious or ideological objective within Canada. And let me quickly accept the latter part. So obviously there's an ideological component here yeah. that meets that that part of the test easily. Yeah. I think that where the where the action is, is what's the evidence that justifies the invocation related to the threat or use of acts of serious violence against persons or property? Yeah. That's 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 everything depends upon that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And what I would say about that is, is that uh, there's a certain inscrutability always when you rely on that um, version of the CSIS Act, because you you are probing the government's um, essentially secret intelligence knowledge and profiling of the protest movement. Um, and you know, I've, I know there have been some efforts by the public safety minister recently to to kind of open up that picture of why they're so concerned about, um, you know, serious violence or potential for serious violence. But but it, it is a it is a kind of barrier to us fully understanding that. But I am working on the presumption, which I hope is right, that the government over the last two plus weeks has been able at the federal level, at least, to put together an increasingly accurate picture of some of the more violent dynamics of the protest movement. So I, I think my hesitance, yeah. though, and so, so allow me to express my mm. civil liberties skepticism. Yeah. And this isn't even directed at the proposed measures. This is this is the challenging part of this conversation. I said to Leah, I'll say the same to you. Any debate around the Emergencies Act, I think, should credibly be focused on the necessity and proportionality yep. of the proposed measures. Yep. And yet, here we are talking about whether this is even an emergency at all, as under the under the act, as, as, as within the meaning of the act. 
And I just find that really challenging. I think, I think that should be obvious. That should be the obvious hurdle we jump over. And then the action should be on proposed measures. We're not even getting there because it's so, it's so complicated to even determine whether the, the threshold of this, of this act is even met. And on, on the serious violence and the evidence and the explanatory note that was recently tabled in parliament, I'm not sure that I see that two plus weeks of intelligence that is clearly articulated in, in that explanatory note. And, and it may be, to your point, a matter of protecting intelligence sources. I don't know. But but even there's one line that says there's evidence of coordination between convoys. And then there's no articulation of what the evidence yeah. is. There, there's no yeah. there's not even a, a high level understanding of what the evidence is. There's just a blanket statement. Trust us. Yeah. I, I just I struggle. Yeah. I struggle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is this is our habit in Canada, isn't it? I mean, when when we get to these kind of national security challenges, threats, um, you know, the, 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 the government does expect us to trust them. And, and I think we're we're way past that in terms of, of you know, democratic accountability and, and expectations on the part of Canadians that they they have the right to know more. So so I'm fully with you on that. Um, my my view on this is is in a way um, um, hopefully tinged that the government does have uh, a good intelligence picture and that intelligence picture suggests to them that there are elements uh, in the protest movement that are fully prepared to use violence and and we've seen hints of that so far but I think you know there are a couple of things that are important here Nate one one is that in in the emergencies um, uh, act itself, there, it is meant to encompass uh, potentialities, and uh, in the Canada Gazette, the you know the order and order and council, um, the government specifies the emergency as including uh, in the, the language used the potential for an increase in the level of unrest and violence, the potential for increase uh, that would further threaten the safety and security of Canadians, and and to be honest, what I'm seeing in Ottawa in particular, I think cuts in a couple of different directions there. One, growing intransigence, clearly, on the part of, of people in the protest movement, including protest organizers. You know, we will hold the line. I, I'm not sure that they know what that historical reference is, but it goes back to the Spanish Civil War, as you probably know, and in, in you know the resistance against Franco's fascist forces uh, as they as they um, marched on Madrid. But you know that that's been their language. We are not giving up. I heard one protester uh, quoted on CBC radio yesterday afternoon saying, "The only way they're going to get me out of here is in a box." You know, that's right. you know that's that's verbiage. And the government uh, but, has articulated that there has been there have been threats against yeah, police exactly. to maintain the blockades. One yeah. question here that I have, and, and it is about the ordering of things and the sequencing of things, because. Unquestionably, there have been threats of serious violence. I think we saw with the conspiracy charges that in itself is evidence of, of serious uh, yep. threats of serious violence. And I, I, there are other cases you mentioned individual protester in their language, but there are any number of instances where we can point to threatening language, language of treason. We see the nooses hanging off of trucks. There's a, there's yeah. a threatening element to much of this. Yeah. But is it not the blockades? themselves that create the threat that we are responding to as opposed to the threats of violence themselves because it seems when i look at the section 2c of the act it's the threats of violence and or the violent the serious violence 
that itself has to constitute the national security threat that we're responding to, the, the national emergency that we're responding to. Here, I don't think that actually adds up. I think there's a sequencing problem. I think we are responding to a national emergency caused by blockades, and the violence is real. The, the threats of violence is real, but it's ancillary. It's ancillary to it is um, ancillary to the blockades, which are the actual emergency we're responding to, and the blockades themselves don't seem to fall within the Section C to C definition, as far as I can tell. Uh, but so, I, is Nick, that, is that I, a fair criticism? Yeah, I, I mean, I understand. I understand the point. I think it's a strong point. Uh, I, you know, I think some of the evidence that the RCMP uh, came across in the in breaking up the Coots blockade uh, may suggest uh, a slightly different picture of of the potential. And, and it it is not necessarily just the reality of violence that we have to wait for, but it's the potentiality of violence and the seizing of weapons uh, and and kind of ancillary body armor and that kind of stuff, which which is very worrying. And and again, I would say that the in, the intention of the Emergencies Act is is to deal, and this is where it's a little bit similar to the war, the old War Measures Act. It's to deal with an apprehended situation. In other words, it it is designed to have some flexibility to cope with a situation that may not be fully known uh, and may be fast changing. And, and my view of, of the protest movement um, is, is that it has essentially two components. There is the economic damage caused and the trading relationship damage caused by the blockades. And then there is the flashpoint of violence present in the Ottawa occupation, which is really, I think, the epicenter of the protest movement uh, at the moment. I mean, that may change down the down the road. But where it seems to me that we, from my perspective at least, have to be concerned about that threat of violence and, and where the invocation of the CESAS Act, uh, it, it may be justifiable, at least in my view, is that the violence uh, does not need to be purely a product of the protest movement, um, but it may be occasioned by the kinds of I think very dangerous potential flashpoints that we've seen in Ottawa, as Ottawa residents fed up with being abandoned um, by their by their own police and authorities, have tried to take it into their own hands to stop the movement of protest convoys in and out of downtown. And and I I fear uh, that that not because the the counter protesters have themselves violence in mind I, I think they clearly don't I think they're angry and understandable but I understandably so but I just fear that those kinds of flashpoints are the are the kind of thing that could create an out of control situation of violence uh, which which I think the um, you know the hardcore of the protest movement would not back away from. And, and that is my real fear of, of a combination of intransigence and a growing emboldenedness on the part of the protest movement who think they're winning. And you can, as you know, you can see this on some many of the signs downtown. We are on the right side of history. They think they're winning. And, uh, you know, as they confront counter protesters, as well as others, including the media, which they've, they, you know, I, I gather, uh, you know, in, um, you know, the media found great difficulty in dealing with the protest movement, trying to report on it. Uh, I just fear there are all kinds of flashpoints here for for real violence. 
and and we would be wrong and too narrow to think that we just have to wait for a clear sign of violence coming from the protest movement. I don't think that's necessarily how it's. I think it's well, I don't there. Think we have to wait for a clear sign of violence from the protest movement for the police to do their jobs. But if I read the act together as one is supposed to do, right. and I read two A, two B, two C, and two D all together. Violence to overthrow the government, espionage, state-sponsored foreign influence, these are massively high thresholds. Yeah. This is That is something else that we are not experiencing today. And I do feel like we are not maybe reading 2C together with those other provisions by lowering the threshold at which we're, we're seeking to invoke this act. Because those are very, very high thresholds and, and very serious occasions that thankfully we're yeah. not experiencing today. Yeah, no, absolutely. But it, but I think it has to be said. And again, this this comes to the point about, about shoehorning uh, the CESIS Act. You're doing an they, excellent job, by the way. <laughs> the CESIS Act <laughs> is what they had to use. It's. I think it is important to understand that that you know one does need to read the ceases act as a whole but in terms of section 2 provisions defining threats to the security of canada these are all autonomous they are you know it can be one of these four things it doesn't have it to be it can be, be all one of them. but you would think that they would they would be of a of a similar scale of, of challenge the the and then i guess a knock on question and i didn't know this act existed until recently but there's this act the security offenses act Mm-hmm. And if we do think that there's a 2C threat, then under the Security Offenses Act, the AG of Canada can commence a proceeding and the members of the RCMP who are peace officers can enforce the law. We don't need the Emergencies Act to have them do that. And I noted one of the regulations in the Emergencies Act is to have the RCMP enforce municipal and provincial law. Yep. That seems superfluous if we do think 2C is engaged, if 2C is engaged, then wouldn't the first place be to have the RCMP do the damn job via the Security Offenses Act? Yes. So uh, I think it's it's a great point. Um, I think the challenge with the Security Offenses Act is that it is more narrowly targeted and focused in my reading of it in the Emergencies Act. And I'm not sure it's it's as usable as the Emergencies Act in a in a practical sense. Well, it doesn't um, allow for additional powers to be created. No, but it, but it would allow us to have the and it, and it's triggered by the same threshold, which is what yes. I found interesting. Yeah, uh, and so sure. that seemed to me to be a logical place that you would begin to have the RCMP doing a traditional policing job. Which, frankly, the traditional policing job seems to have been effective at the borders, and I don't think the traditional policing job has been effectively tried in Ottawa by all no. indications. When we look at the powers, so let's get to the specific powers in the interest of time. And the powers around freezing bank accounts, that seems to be the area that is both the most forceful, but also the most novel and the area where it will maybe instill a desire on behalf of these illegal protesters to to move out because they don't want to be subject to those laws. Yeah. It, does it give you pause at all the questions of due process and, and and some of the vagueness to it. And so far as I know there've been a number of questions in the media, and I don't know that the justice ministers landed on the perfect answer just yet, but in terms of who is going to be subject to these laws, it can't possibly be the person who contributed to a GoFundMe when they didn't know what, what it would turn into. I, I would think I got to figure that there's got to be some mens rea associated with, I know sure. what I'm contributing to. Yeah. And so 
is there any sense of, and then once we get past that hurdle, there's the other question of, well, if, if it's a person who's got the truck on Wellington, easy enough, I suppose. But if it's a person who happens to be in the truck or happens to be providing coffee to people from the sidewalk and they get caught up in it, what's the due process that we're wrapping around these provisions? Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and they are novel provisions. Uh, I I've described them as a very creative use of the Emergencies Act, uh, which which I There's think shoehorning there even. Yeah, abs- absolutely, and and I you know I think I would say about this financial weapon that the government has given itself um, that that it is you know it's going to have to be very very carefully used it's got to be used with surgical precision and by that i mean it's going to have to be used only against kind of clearly identifiable hardcore elements of the protest movement um, organizers people who are organizers clearly, and the, the owners of trucks and have been there for a, a, a significant enough duration yeah, absolutely. So, so that hardcore element. There are other elements of the protest movement can be subject to to fines and imprisonment. Other un, under other provisions, of the Emergencies Act, not necessarily where there's proper used. due process. Attack. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, at the end of the day, and again, it comes back to our conversation about intelligence. At the end of the day, to use this financial weapon in a surgical way, the government is going to have to have really good watertight intelligence because the you know the last thing you want to see happen is those provisions used in uh you know it basically in a sort of false positive sense you use them against someone who was who's not what you thought they you, they were doing you know or engaged in in ways that that uh, you simply got wrong so uh i th- you know my sense here is the government is really hoping that this is going to be an effective threat and is perhaps hoping as an ancillary that they don't really want have to use the threat because I think it's going to get very challenging to actually do that, except in a in a few cases. And it, it, so long for it to be charter compliant. I I, I have to say I, I box sometimes when I hear the government say, "Well, the act is charter compliant because it says so." Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, of course, it's only charter compliant depending upon how you use it. Um, anyway, yes. so just because yeah. it says that up front doesn't make it so. But yeah. uh, uh, my, my last question is in relation to slippery slopes. Not all slopes are slippery, but some are. And when we talk about shoehorning or the language of fudging, and when we're really trying to make this act more malleable than I think it properly is in order to get the job done, and we need the job done. So we all agree the job needs to be done. It's just a matter of the means to the end. Is there any concern in your view that, and I raise the same example with Lee, I'll raise it with you. Pre-pandemic, we saw protests across this country in the course of standing in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en and, and land rights. We saw the Mohawk block railways and shut down the economy in a serious way. And we had conservatives that were screaming bloody murder to say, put an end to this, the economy, the economy, the economy. And it, and it does have a feel in this situation that the blockades caused economic harm, not serious violence, but economic harm. And we're equating economic harm, significant, and economic harm that can't be allowed to continue, but economic harm with serious violence. And is there any concern that if we use the act in this way, it gets used in other ways we may be less comfortable with down the road? I guess my my response to that Nate is I hope not but I but I think there are you know the the emergencies act 
at the end of the day is difficult to use and and is deliberately difficult to use i think i think it doesn't need to be amended and and i think there's it's going to be vital to have a real public conversation of, about it uh to prevent it becoming any kind of slippery slope but i think i i would say that um the likelihood of it creating a precedent and and it and governments feeling it easier to use down the road in different kinds of circumstances i don't think are are really um, real concerns in the sense that, as you know, among other things, uh, anytime you invoke the, the Emergencies Act, uh, you stimulate uh, a, a major parliamentary debate and parliament has to approve or reject the act. And uh, so it becomes a bit like a confidence motion. I don't know how many times governments, particularly minority ones, want to go through that. There also has to, as you know, there has to be a special parliamentary committee to to keep a sort of watch on the use of the Emergencies Act, um, consisting of members from from all the recognized parties. And importantly, there has to be a a thorough review of the uses of the Act after after you know the Act is is revoked or suspended. And I think all of those circumstances mean that every time the Act is used as was the case with the Mort Measures Act back in 1970, it generates a huge public debate. It, it generates real scrutiny. Uh, and and it gives, as has happened in this case, it gives future governments real pause about ever using it again. You know, the current Trudeau government doesn't want to use anything that looks like the War Measures Act, particularly, you know, calling on the military. I think any future government, um, no matter how this current use of the Emergencies Act turns out, I think any future government would be very hesitant to use the Emergencies Act, except in very uh, extreme circumstances. circumstances. Yeah. yeah. I, and I and in part because of the parliamentary process and scrutiny that is wrapped around it. I think that's a good yeah. point. It's one thing. So there are lots of things for me to consider in the course of this. If it is a confidence vote, it's even more challenging in some ways. <laughs> I, I have to say, I am completely sympathetic to the ends. I I don't think when I read the law, as I think the law, I'm a little uncomfortable with shoehorning when it comes to a law like this. I think the law, I when I read your article on February 11th, I think you were right. And I worry that we've jumped past the thresholds, skipped past them in a way without the substantive evidence required. And it may be that the thresholds are too high or, or, or not too high, but miss, miss the mark to your point around critical infrastructure. Maybe that yeah. we simply don't have two D or two E that should exist. Uh, sure. Frankly, it may well be yeah. the case, but I do worry just as a, a matter of the rule of law. On the one hand, I'm saying I want these blockades to be cleared because of the rule of law. And then in clearing the blockades, I'm skating a little bit on the rule of law it makes me deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. The parliamentary scrutiny bring some of that comfort back. And so far as there will be a committee, there will be an inquiry. So some of that doesn't alleviate all discomfort, unfortunately. No, I, I get that. And, and um, you know, I think, I think we're, we're, we both uh, are going through the same kind of anxious thinking process. Uh, you in a, in a different position of responsibility than me um, about the use of the, the act. And, and I think it, it is, it is really critical to think about the act as a, as a means to an end. And, and then the question becomes, is it the only means? Is it the appropriate means? Part of that, I think at the end of the day, I feel will depend on how the act is used. 
if it's not used well, if it's not used effectively, you know, I think we'll all come to the conclusion that it that it wasn't appropriate as a means. Um, maybe the you know judgment of history will be kind about the use of the act and the shoehorning that I think is is going on here if it is used ef- effectively. And then we may hopefully have some breathing space to say, well, 1988 legislation in a 21st century world doesn't cut it, and and we really you know need to do things and think about things a little differently in the future. Well, thanks, Professor Work. I appreciate it. It's given me a considerable amount to think about. Yourself and Professor West come at it from actually a similar perspective. In especially your February 11th article, I think was quite consistent and. You have come to a place, I think, where you are much more concerned about the if we don't act now, if we don't take responsibility, and if we don't fudge or shoehorn a little bit to get there, it yeah. will be even worse. And so there's a, there's a bit of an ends justifying the means. I gotta yes. I gotta I gotta think about it a great deal. Uh, but I appreciate your time. No, it was great to chat, and thanks for the the chance. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. I do apologize for how technical the discussion was at times, but it really does help me think through this debate we're having in Parliament, and it will help to inform my final determination as well. If you have any questions or comments before that final determination, before we vote early next week, I'd love to hear from you at info at beyna.ca. You can always find past episodes at uncommons.ca. If you like what we're doing, please do leave us a positive review. And otherwise, until next time.